Did you really think I was going to do anything else but talk about Banjo-Kazooie? Eh? When discussing the best video game of all time, my favourite video game of all time, the game that I have completed more times than any other game of all time, the game that essentially made me a video game fan, this is the game for me. I try and replay it every year because it is that close to my heart. So settle in, buckle up, and hopefully enjoy the next 15 minutes or so whilst I talk your ears off about the masterpiece that is Banjo Mother Flippin' Kazooie. Hello, Michael from the future here. Turns out this pod went on for 30 minutes, so ignore my references to 15. Mm, my, my intro was not long enough, it seems. Nearly there. Yeah! That is the intro that it greets you when you start up the game, where you've got the entire cast of characters doing a lovely little hoedown. Ah, the hoedown. That bloody hoedown. Um... Where to begin? I suppose where to begin, that is, that is the key. So, I mean, Banjo-Kazooie came out in 1998, uh, a few years after Super Mario 64 kind of reimagined Mario. And I, as uh, amazingly as a child, I didn't actually own a Nintendo 64. I had a friend of mine, I was a PlayStation, I was a PlayStation and Mega Drive, Mega Drive boy. And so I grew up on Sonic. Sonic was my jam and never really played any Mario games and didn't know anything about Zelda. I listened to uh, Hemming's Zelda uh, Boko uh, the other day, and it was um, yeah. I don't have the, I don't have anything like that. To be, and it's weird to, to say that that I never played Zelda really until the Nintendo 64, and on a 64 that I didn't even bloody own. So I had a friend who had a friend, and he used to borrow his friend's Nintendo 64, and I used to borrow his Nintendo 64 from him. And that's how it kind of worked. And basically, he came around my house one day and was like, "Yo, uh, I've got Nintendo 64. If you want to borrow it, like for the for, for for the for the day or night or whatever, or the weekend, I'll pick it up like next week because I think he was going on holiday or something like that." And um, the games that he had for it was WWF No Mercy, uh, WWF NWO Revenge, all of those types of games. And it might have been WrestleMania 2000, come to think of it, but. There was obviously the pro wrestling games, which are you know, the GOATs, yeah, there's that Aki engine, sings to this day. And we had Super Mario 64, which um, was, you know, Super Mario 64 was good. I will say I didn't like it very much. You know, it, as a child, it wasn't the one for me when I borrowed when I borrowed the console, because I, pl- I stuck it in first because it was the game I knew of. I was like, yeah, okay, I know, so I know Mario, so let's play Super Mario 64. I did the first level a thousand times and never really got really any further. And... And one time, I was going through what games are in the bag, because it was just a, a Tesco's carrier bag of cartridges, and Banjo-Kazooie glistened to me. It, it caught my eye, and I was like, go on him. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you got. And it changed everything, man. It changed everything for me. It made the concept of a collectathon 3D platformer better, in my opinion, than it's ever been, then or since. It is, it is the GOAT. It is a perfect game, an absolute dream of a game. And I'm going to touch now as to its brief history before then spending 15 minutes talking to you about the gaming experience that you have if you were to experience playing the game. So, here we go.
Twas the year 1995, five years into the Super Nintendo's lifespan, when British game developers Rare were conceiving a project called Project Dream, which was about a small boy named Edison who used a wooden sword to battle a group of pirates led by a man named Captain Blackeye. The game was reportedly too large for a SNES cart, so it was transferred over to the Nintendo 64 where it was envisioned as a massive 3D role-playing game. As audio designer and absolute fucking genius Grant Kirkhope talked about on his blog, Project Dream had an elaborate floor system which that meant we could stretch the polygons into any shape to create some really great looking landscapes that really hadn't been tried before. Unfortunately, the Nintendo 64 didn't have the power to run it at a decent frame rate, and we were struggling to make it work. The game was then turned into Gonka's Bad Fur Day, which by the way, I didn't actually very much enjoy, and the remaining bits were turned into a massive 3D platformer. Rare co-founder Tim Stamper also decided the main character should be changed from a boy into an animal. A bear had been one of Project Dream's minor side characters, so Rare took his design and evolved him into Banjo. Rare loved the design of Banjo so much that they included him in Diddycon Racing more than six months before the gay release of his own game. Incredible. So Banjo has a name, a console to live on, and a team to make it. But why am I talking about it 25 years later, and why is it my favourite game of all time? And this is the question I'm going to try and answer for you right now. So, the music you've been hearing uh, whilst I've been talking in that very difficult to maintain voice is the music of Spiral Mountain. Spiral Mountain is where you begin the game. Moments after your sister, Banjo's sister, Tootie, has been kidnapped by Gruntilda, the evil witch. Um, you start the game with uh, Bear and Bird, birds in the backpack of the bear, Banjo and Kazooie. You start off in Spiral Mountain where you, it's basically the tutorial area of the game. You do all the stuff, fight some carrots and cauliflowers and rock your way up to the mountain into Gruntilda's lair. If you go down to the woods today, you're sure to find the greatest game of all time. Exactly, so, Gruntilda's Lair acts as the connector to all of the other worlds in the game. It's kind of the main hub, if you like, and you'll spend the majority of your time in there unlocking ways to get through the damned thing in order to get to the very top. Now, each world has its own set of collectibles that you have to get in order to get through the lair. So there are these things called note doors that sit throughout the, the lair, which is a big labyrinth type uh, construction, which will have an arbitrary number on them. So you may find a note door which has the number 300 on it, for example. In each world, you will, there are many different things to collect and one of those things are notes. And the way that notes work in the N64 version of the game is when you enter a world, and we'll start with the first one, let for, you know, Mumbo's Mountain it's called, when you enter that world, the amount of notes you collect before you die is your high score if you like. And if you were to die and then try again, you'd have to recollect all the notes you got in order to then beat your high score. In the Xbox 360 version, and I believe the Nintendo Switch version, or is it the Nintendo Switch version? Certainly the Xbox Live version, if you collected a note and you died, that note remains collected. So it's a little bit easier. But you must collect these notes from the worlds, there are a hundred on each, in order to then get the required amount of notes to then get through the doors and progress through the game. To unlock different worlds, you find uh, giant uh, jigsaw puzzles throughout the world. And bear in mind, in this Grunthilda's Lair Hub world, there are loads of puzzles, there's loads of branching things, there's enemies to, to kill, there's 
even more collectibles to get. There's moves to unlock, or that your moves that you need to have unlocked in worlds in order to progress through to unlock certain things. And you find these giant jigsaw puzzles, and you must collect jiggies. That's right, jiggies. Jigsaw pieces within the worlds themselves to then use them in the jigsaw puzzles outside in the hub world, Gruntilda's Lair. You fill in the, the pictures with jigsaw pieces to then unlock those, those worlds. And the first one we're going to come across is a delightful little number called Mumbo's Mountain. So Mumbo's Mountain is where we start to figure it all out. It's the kind of the introduction to the game to a degree. It's more than a tutorial, but it starts to teach you how the game really works. And this is kind of... Um, it exemplifies what Banjo-Kazooie is all about. You've got that incredibly sharp uh, kind of British humour, which, again, I found very cutting as a child. You had a lot of sarcastic jokes in there, lots of sarcasm, especially from Kazooie the bird, which, again, I just really appreciated as a kid. And I still find some of the jokes and some of the cutting comments uh, from Kazooie to Bottles, the mole who teaches you the moves in the game, to be pretty funny. I, I still I still chuckle at them. You'll get a lot of toilet humour as well, even there, and the odd suggestion of innuendo, which, again, is bizarre to me as a as a you know an E-rated an E-rated game, but it's all kind of packaged in this light-hearted fairy tale world. And as we go on to the level, all the levels are pretty similar in, in terms of what they're all about. So you, you kind of go in and you have different within a world. You have these small little distinctive micro areas um, which have their own kind of almost like a gimmick to them. And in Mumbo's Mountain, it's very simple. You there's a big ant nest which you must go into now. You'll meet one of the other big characters of the game, a, a, a shaman called Mumbo Jumbo, who will basically, for a collectible currency called little Mumbo Tokens, if you collect enough of them in the worlds, he'll transform you into something which will help you then beat that world. In Mumbo's Mountain, he'll turn you into, into an ant, which allows you to climb up the ant hill and get the jiggy. It's a very small world, it's a wonderful little introduction. You learn a couple of moves in this world as well, including the big Kaslam move, which will help you uh, destroy lots of things going forward and it's also a wonderful introduction to the physics of the game now i mentioned earlier the game was perfect it's not perfect because the camera is questionable yeah the, the camera controls are questionable at best now you do have uh, something to aid you with this it is the little if you click your thing on the r button the camera will always go behind you which is very helpful and one of the reasons why I've always found the camera not as bothersome as maybe other people find it is because I've always found the, the physics to have real weight to them. When you're jumping over a ledge, you know where you are because the physics behave in a very believable fashion. Everything feels very heavy and there's weight to it. When you jump across a ledge, you can see your shadow and you know where you're going to land. And I find because of that and because the physics all make sense and because there's continuity between everything, it creates this very believable world. Everything makes sense within the theme of the game. The physics makes sense. There's nothing, there's no randomness. There's nothing that happens where you go, you know what, that was bullshit. And that for me, again, helps create this narrative and it creates this feeling of a game that lives and breathes and helps you kind of get really immersed in the feeling of it. Now, Mumbo's Mountain, very simple. I can 
pretty much complete this level in about seven minutes or something stupid like that. Um, we'll move on to the next one because it's probably the best level on the game or certainly up there. Again, I must say here, Grant Kirkhope, you absolute bloody genius. Listen to that. You'll have that in, the, in your head for the rest of the day, I, I promise you. And this is where Treasure Trove Cove is where the game starts to... Here we go. Yeah, here we go. This is where you learn to fly, so you can fly around the levels using red feathers. This is where you meet Captain Blubber, and you start to now meet the inhabitants of the world. And one of the things I should mention is that every single character of the game, especially the inanimate objects, uh, they all have a pair of googly eyes which I always find amusing. Uh, you also find the sandcastle here where you can enter cheats. You'll, you'll encounter a, a book throughout the lair in very hidden spaces called Cheeto. Cheeto, the, the, the spell book. And this is where you can enter in the cheats that he'll give you, such as uh, you know more feathers, more eggs, because you can shoot eggs as well um, out of Kazooie's arse. Yes. Yes, exactly. And you, as I said, you start to meet the inhabitants, you start getting a feel for the writing. All of the characters are voiced in a very uh, strange way, which you'll hear now. Wasn't that fun to listen to? That was Banjo talking to Kazooie, who were then interrupted by Gruntilda. And every time Gruntilda interrupts you, she speaks in rhyme, which is uh, quite creative as the game goes on, because there's only so many rhymes I think they could come up with. But yeah, so Treasure Trove Cove, many people's favorite level throughout the course of the entire game, and certainly one that I always look forward to, to replaying. <laughs> Ah, Clanker's Cavern. The underwater level, eh? The third, the tricky third level, the underwater behemoth that is Clanker's Cavern. A very strange level. This is actually the level that scared me the most as a kid because when you go into it, it's basically a giant... This is where Gruntilda's trash compactor lives who happens to be a giant shark called Clanker. And you go in and there's this giant fish staring at you. And of course you're swimming. And I don't know about you guys, but... Swimming in video games always makes me feel very uneasy. I have PTSD from the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, sound. This is horrible. Absolutely bloody horrible. But thankfully we're back to the, to the joy of Clanker's Cavern again. This is also where you learn how to be invincible. So you can use the Wonder Wing move, which bottles the, the, the mole teaches you to then deflect attacks, which is also quite good. But it's, it's at a price, you see, because you collect golden feathers throughout the world. And you can only have, I think, ten of them at any one time, making it a very risk-reward strategy. Clanker's Cavern's pretty good, though. It's There's lots of swimming in one direction down a giant pipe to get the jiggy to then turn all the way back and hopefully do it before you run out of lives. Swimming underwater is awkward. I mentioned before the camera is quite awkward at times, none more so than on this bloody level. I enjoy it, but it can be a bit of a chore. <laughs> And the thing, and the thing, and the thing.
so here we are on Bubble Gloop Swamp. Ah, this is a, this is where you start getting into the weeds a little bit because there's lots of uh, like time challenges. So you have to kind of run across some very thin ledges after hitting a switch to then get the jiggy, and it, they disappear after a while. And it's very tricky. You're also faced with a giant crocodile, but it's not really a giant crocodile. It's a crocodile called Mr. Vile, and it's like a mini game where you have to collect these things before he does can be quite tricky there's a memory game here as well where you have to do the orchestra of turtles all these words sound ridiculous to you if you've never played the damn game but yeah you also can transform into a little crocodile and this is where the first level where the, there are parts of the floor which is the swamp that you just can't go on and it, you're starting to learn that surfaces make a difference and you're also starting to get access to some different shoes this is where you can get some shoes which allow you to walk on the surface. You also get some shoes which allow you to run fast. So you start to learn there's different bits to the game, a little bit more depth than perhaps you thought. A decent level, one of my least favorite I would suggest. Nothing compared to what's next. The best damned snow level on any game there's ever been of all time. Okay, Freeze Easy Peak, a level I was not happy about when I was a child. Not happy at all. I found it incredibly difficult. Obviously, there's many slippery surfaces. You've got to collect bears. For, uh, no, that's, that's the wrong way around. You've got to collect some presents for some bears, which uh, is quite difficult to find. You've got a very tricky... Um, a bit where you've got to save the lights in a Christmas tree from a load of marauding thingamajiggies. That's quite difficult. And as a child, I found it difficult because you've got these giant snowmen which keep uh, uh, hollering snowballs at you. And the only way to get rid of them is to do, is to fly for one and use one of your attacks in the air, which is a big, like, beak bustery attack. Lining that fucker up with the camera is, is, is the hardest thing in the game. The flying attack move is the hardest thing in the damned game, and there's I think there's five or six of these guys that you have to that you have to kill to get a jiggy. My God, hours, hours I spent doing this. However, there is one of the funnest bits of the game, and this is where the platforming really shines. You've got to climb up the giant snowman in the middle, along his scarf, onto his hat, you know, across his pipe. Genuine platforming joy here, because there's a real sense of height. There's a real sense of wonder, and it's just, a, again, a lovely self-contained level where every single thing in the entire world makes sense. There's a reason for it to be there. Everything is believable. The physics of how it works, the music, as you can hear, the, mu the music's incredible, yeah? The most whimsical snow level there ever was. An incredible feat, and, and as I mentioned, I wasn't a fan of it as a kid growing up. As an adult replaying this damn level, it's, 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 it's fan, it's fantastic, yeah? Fantastic. And the game only gets better from here. It's a desert level. And just like I said, the previous level was the best damn snow level of all time. This might be the best damn desert level of all time because you've got you've got pyramids, you can explore the pyramids, you've got sarcophaguses, you've got timed mazes where you've got to get out of a maze as quick as you can. You've got 
um, a sphinxes, you've got quicksand, you've got it all. You've got mummy hands which try and trap you in. It's genuinely, again, a fact, you've, you've got a flying carpet, many flying carpets for goodness sake. There's, and again, as you go in, I mentioned earlier, there's all these worlds are self-contained. There's all little areas in there which have their own little special gimmick. Now, the thing with, with Gobi's Valley is, is that it's a level where there's so much under the surface. There's so many hidden nooks and crannies, and there's so many little bits and pieces where you go, wow, I have never seen that bit. And when you're sitting there trying to hunt out each of these jiggies and find the last damned note, you've got to explore every single aspect of it. And it's a joy. It's just an absolute joy. And this is again where, well, not again, but this is where you find one of those levels where you do something in in one part of the level which will affect another. So for example, you've got Gobi who is the, the camel and you've got Trunker who is the tree. Now the Trunker, the tree, needs water because he's in a desert and Gobi, the camel, who you free from one section of the, of the world runs over to have some shade underneath the tree and you do the old big buster move on his humps to then water the damned tree. Gobi then moves somewhere else, so we'll get onto a little bit later. And so it's a little thing where it's like, oh, okay, here we go. And there's another area where you, you, you solve a puzzle and it creates, um, it puts water into one of the big kind of ravine areas, which enables you to then swim around it to access areas that you wouldn't have been able to get to before. So there's loads of little puzzles and little things you have to figure out in order to get to where you need to go. Delicious. On Mad Monster Mansion, which I believe is world number seven, Mumbo turns you into a pumpkin. A pumpkin. So then you can get down a drain pipe to get a jiggy. A pumpkin. Yep. Uh, I, I'm not sure I need to say too much else about this level. Other than the fact that it's, it's a joy. Everything about it is a joy. You've got a many different aspects to this level. But pumpkin, that's all I can say. Ah, Rusty Bucket Bay. Rusty Bucket Bay. So you're eight worlds in here, probably feeling pretty happy with yourself. A breeze, you might say. Well, Rare are here to say fuck you and everything you think you know about this bloody game. You've got polluted oily water so just swimming on the surface of the water uses up air and when you dive underneath the water you use air twice as fast there's also a shark in the water which doesn't help the main uh, purpose of this level is there's a big horrible rusty ship in the middle that you've just got to kind of go in and, and do loads of stuff in yeah uh, of course 10 jiggies 100 notes blah 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 so there's also toxic wastewater where you'll just take damage by just being on it anyway. Uh, and then there's the engine room, which is commonly cited as the hardest uh, area in all of Banjo-Kazooie, that damned engine room. So in the engine room, I think there's two or three jiggies involved in there, which makes it obviously an area that you have to go in. Uh, there's, there's cranks, wafer-thin platforms, deadly fans, and the reason why it's so annoying is because it's the area of the game where there's instant death. So if you fall off of any of these very thin rotating platforms, uh, you're dead. Yeah, you're dead. And I mentioned earlier that the game has a note score. So if you if you die, you have to get all the notes again to get to then go past your earlier total. 
And uh, you, you may think, well, at the engine room, you know, you, you just take your time. Well, no, 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 no. Because there's many, there's a couple of jiggies which involve you doing it fast and navigating it quickly. So it's it's just incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Particular one jiggy, which again is cited as the hardest in the game, it's the propeller jiggy, where you have to press a button in the engine room, a timer starts to count down, and you've got to get back through the engine room over all the rotating fucking bullshit platforms, avoiding instant death if you fall off. You've got to get up this giant ladder, go across the ship, dive into the water, hear hello camera controls in the water being hilarious, go down through the propeller, which is then stop because you press the switch grab the jiggy and then escape my my god it's the hardest thing in, in the game by a mile and if the sense of completing it is miraculous yeah it's miraculous fuck rusty bucket bay but also it's incredible because the challenge here everything you think you know about the game just dials up to 11 all of the safe bits you thought you knew about, no, 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 everything hurts you. And you just have to use all of the moves, all of your ingenuity. The puzzles are perfect. The the, the challenge is, is, is elite. It's a cracking level, an absolutely cracking level. And it's the, uh, the perfect hard level for what is about to come, the last level. So I'll let that run on a little bit because uh, Click Clock Wood is incredible. What an incredibly happy tune. Now, this is where it gets, like, the, the creativity of Rare just dialed up to 50 million here because Click Clock Wood is divided into four separate areas. As you walk into the world, you've got the Click Clock Wood hub and you start off in spring. You go through spring and then click a switch to unlock summer. You do summer, you unlock fall, you do fall and you end in winter. Each of those separate seasons have their own music, challenges, etc, etc. Now, but it all revolves around one giant tree and the tree changes throughout the season. So you'll get plants that are growing in spring, uh, fully grown in summer, starting to die in fall and are dead in winter. And the things you do in one season affect the things in another season. So for example, Gobi, I mentioned him earlier, you utilize him to water a plant in one of the seasons and you watch it grow throughout. And the interconnected nature of all of the worlds lead to some really excellent kind of puzzle designs. And as I mentioned with the kind of the, the plant growing throughout the seasons. Another one involved, there's a beaver called Naughty, who is in in summer, you can go to him, he's, he's at the base of the tree, and he can't get into his house. There's a big boulder, you know, sitting in the way. You smash the boulder, uh, but then you can't get up the damned hill, it's too steep. So then you come back in, in fall or autumn and swim into the tunnel, because it's now full of water, because autumn is a rainy season. Then when you're in the house, you can get the jiggy that he kept for you since the summer. You see? So there's all these little different kind of interconnected things which happen. And when you can unlock the, uh, the, the launch pad, the flying launch pad to go and swim around the damn thing, wow, it's just an incredible, incredible experience. There's also, a, there's also a, at the very top of the tree, there's a nest with a baby bird. Well, it's not the very top, near the very top. And you literally have to feed this thing caterpillars throughout the seasons and then watch it grow. And it's just these little things. Yeah, it just makes it absolutely magic. It's, it's an incredible level. It's one of... The best levels in video game history, in my opinion. Whenever I get to this level, I'm sad that I'm nearly done with the game, but I'm also incredibly happy because I get to experience this level again. It's a joy, an absolute joy. 
And when you've done it, it's on to the Grunty's Game Show Furnace Fun thingamajig. As you can guess by the music, this is indeed a game show of sorts. This is where your knowledge of the entire game is put to the test. You're you're greeted with a giant, um, I don't know, a giant board game board. And every square on the board has a different thing. And it might be a case of name that sound. And it'll be the sound of a random person or object that you spoke to 10 hours ago. Or, um, you know, what see, what level is this scene from? And it'll be like a really zoomed up picture of a part of a level. And you've got to guess the right one. It's a controversial level for many reasons. Because throughout the game, I haven't mentioned that Brentilda, Gruntilda's sister, is in many like areas just standing there and you go and speak to her and she'll tell you three secrets about Gruntilda that you didn't know before and some of the answers to some of these questions are some of those secrets and the fun thing is is that the secrets change depending on your playthrough so there isn't actually a definitive guide as to what the answers are I don't believe which is yeah a great deal of fun so you have to really note these things down and actually listen and remember and pay attention to what you're playing this level would be great and very creative if there wasn't insta-death squares, which then reset the entire progress and you have to start again. It's interesting, I usually enjoy it, but again it's one of those, this is a very strange final level. But once it's done and you're through the board and you've reminisced about what an incredible time you've had over the last I don't know, 20 hours or so that you may have been spending playing the game, it's time for the final fight. I'm not going to go into the last level in any detail at all really because you should discover that for yourself. Just know that it involves a lot of flying and uh, as we have discovered on this on this show, flying on Nintendo 64 hardware absolutely sucks. So enjoy, it's uh, an interesting end to the game and it's a... Uh, it always makes me feel sad because that means the game is over, my journey is done. However, I would be remiss if I didn't want to just mention a few things uh, at the end of this of this pod here. Um, I didn't talk about many things as well. I didn't talk about Jinjos and the fact you have to collect them and what they mean for the story. I didn't talk about the fact that Clapton Black Eye is featured in Mad Monster Mansion as on the painting. I didn't even talk about Stop and Swap, the incredibly controversial element which was a mad idea by the developers. There's Gruntilda and the bosses and the bosses you face in between some of the worlds. I didn't talk about many aspects of the worlds. You have to really go and explore these worlds, man. They're very tight. They're very packed. And around every corner, there's something fun to see. Um, I didn't talk about so much. And I regret not talking about so much. But by the same token, I don't feel like I should give it all away here. You know, you should go and experience it for yourself. And you can do so on uh, the Nintendo online service for the Switch. They do have Banjo-Kazooie available. They do have save states, so you can get yourself through that rather nefarious engine room with uh, little trouble. And yeah, I would, just, I would highly encourage you to go to go play it. There is the aspect, of course, that I'm talking through Nostalgia Eyes. <laughs> nostalgia helps everything. But look, the game has outrageous amounts of charm. It has outrageous amounts of humor. Again, in that lovely old-school 90s kind of British style. There's a, there's a lovely degree of sarcasm involved. There's a great sense of wonder. There's a great sense of exploration. The game presents you with all the tools you need to succeed, but lets you then go 
how that but then gives you the the agency to figure out how to use those tools to succeed i read that in a review of this game whilst researching this pod and i can't think of a better way to sum it up you get a level a, a sense of creativity and responsibility to, to tackle it your way and this is going to sound like the most mardy thing i think i've said in my life but this was the first game i fell in love with and there is some degree of kinship that I feel is very similar way that I feel from the first time I played Banjo-Kazooie and exploring this world and knowing that everything is so grounded in what it is that makes no sense but bear with me and the first time I played Dark Souls in terms of exploring a world and the wonder that came with it and I'm sure there's a connection there and I'm sure as I ponder that connection over the next probably several years I'll think of a better way to word it but I love this game I would encourage if any if you have a passing interest in video games to go play it as well it's magic from start to finish and I guarantee you there will be a moment where you laugh where you chuckle where you'll smile and you will have these songs in your head and for the rest of the day I have been Michael Cardinibbs I'm from Grey Fox Plays Games you can listen to our show every couple of weeks um, we have the wonderful host and, uh, and, and main honcho, Mr. Flint. He dropped a boco recently, as mentioned on Resident Evil 2. We've got our trophy hunter, Alex Hemming. He dropped a boco on uh, Le- Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. And Mr. Moles, well, he's in the engine room. Come and listen to us. I'm sure you'll enjoy what you hear. Thank you again.